This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. The minute you walked in the joint, I could see you were a man of distinction, a real big spender. As you're doubtless aware, today is Valentine's Day. And for Americans, Valentine's Day means two things, love and commerce. It's a day when we show our spouses and significant others that we love them by buying them candies, flowers, balloons, and greeting cards that we can get conveniently at our local flower shop, grocery store, or bodega. Many people, at least those who aren't retailers, find this mix of romance and commercial activity distasteful. But the fact is that commerce and marriage have been, shall we say, romantically linked for a long time. Today on Fordham Conversations, we're talking about one love and commerce story, the long-term, long-distance affair between West Africa's Gold Coast and Britain. From the late 15th century until the late 19th, it was quite common for European traders, sailors, and others who made their lives on the Gold Coast, which is now Ghana, to marry local women. The marriages made important social and business connections between the Europeans and the Gold Coasters, and were, simply, a part of coastal life. But when Britain officially colonized the Gold Coast in the late 19th century, the new government decided that Europeans marrying Gold Coasters was not such a good idea. Turned out, though, that that wasn't such an easy thing to legislate. My guest this morning on the show is historian Karina Ray. Ray's an assistant professor of history at Fordham, and she is working on a book about politics, race, and marriage in colonial Ghana. I spoke to her in her apartment in Manhattan, where I began our conversation by asking her to paint me a picture of the coastal world where this story takes place. Dating back to the late 1400s, um, the Gold Coast became an important site of trade between West Africans and Europeans. And so in the late 1400s, the Portuguese were the first to arrive and um, they built a permanent settlement along the coast um, in a place called Elmina. And um, from that point on, you had, um, in the the following centuries, you had uh, the French, the British, um, the Danes, the Dutch, um, a range of different European nations coming to the coast and trading various goods. Obviously, at a later period, starting about the late 1500s, um, the trade in slaves became extremely um, important, but originally... Um, the Portuguese were interested in in the gold trade. What was sort of the the culture like in this area? The culture was that grew up in these uh, in these enclaves was quite mixed in the sense that you had um, you had both Europeans and you had Africans and and because um, they became sites devoted to trade, obviously it wasn't just a trade in material goods or or in humans. It was also a sort of cultural exchange. And one of the sort of important things that occurred and is central to my research is the fact that European men often took local women as wives. Um, and through these marriages, um, European men were sort of brought into local social and cultural and political frameworks. And so it was a period of time when um, Europeans did not really have the upper hand. And Africans were in a position to be able to dictate the terms upon which they would allow Europeans to settle. Um, And in that context, I think we have to understand these relationships between European men and African women is not sort of completely exploitative in the ways in which we might otherwise tend to think of them. 
It's important to also draw a distinction between these marriages um, that were legitimated and uh, the other form of, of interracial contact, which occurred within the castles, which were the sites of the slave dungeons where enslaved Africans waiting to be transported um, to the Americas across the Middle Passage um, were held before being boarded on the ships. Enslaved women who were being held there were often raped by the uh, European male staff in in the castle. So that was also a kind of phenomena that was going on, but again, separate from this other set of relationships that was uh, more legitimate. So you have these people who are enslaved who are waiting to go to the New World. And, you know, I would look at it and say they were enslaved on the basis of, of their being African. And then you also have people who are in these relationships that are like seen as being legitimate with European men. How, how did that work? Okay. Um, so try in, in trying to, to understand how it's possible that, um, a European man might marry an African woman and at the same time be intimately involved, um, in the slave trade. If we assume that, that the reason that Europeans were involved in the slave trade was that they, they considered Africans to be inferior, Right. So why would he then go and and um, marry uh, an African woman? I think it's, it's a very simple answer, which is that how you treat an, an individual does not necessarily reflect how you will treat a larger group or vice versa. And did they think about race the way we think about race, or was there sort of a different paradigm in effect? Well, in part... Race, as we understand it, was in some ways produced through the slave trade. Specifically, race uh, as a sort of understanding of biology that was used to categorize different people along a kind of hierarchy, right? You know, in this much earlier time period, in the in the late 1400s and the late 1500s, things were much more fluid, and as as the slave trade picks up, uh, they become probably less fluid, but still fluid enough to be able to accommodate the kind of mixture that was happening. Right? That that um, as the slave trade picks up, and Africans increasingly become seen as a degenerate or an inferior race, there is still room for. And, and the necessity for these kinds of relationships, right? There's still the necessity for Europeans to have social, political, and economic relationships with Africans. It's through those relationships that, in part, the slave trade works, right? So we can also think about some of these relationships in, in sort of a u- utilitarian um, way, which do not necessarily connote a kind of sense of equality. So as we said, these arrangements weren't they weren't coerced. They were totally something that was just part of the culture. What did both parties get out of them aside from, you know, living with someone that they didn't find too offensive? One of the ways in which, or or the primary way in which marriages were contracted during that time period, not just between Africans and Europeans, but between Africans themselves, was very much through, you know, uh, family arrangements. While a local family may have brokered a marriage with a daughter, uh, with one of their daughters to a European, it's quite possible that the the woman herself might not have been 
too keen on the marriage. So, I mean, she may have been coerced by the family into it. And again, that's not something that would have been unique to, you know, a marriage with a European. But one of the things that we do know is that a lot of the women who did enter these marriages were able to use them to their benefit, were able to accrue economic wealth, um, were able to often accrue uh, more political power, were able to influence their husbands in terms of um, their business dealings, in terms of the different policies that um, that they pursued, particularly if it was, let's say, an administrator. So there was certainly a certain amount of power that individual African women um, could attain through these relationships or could exercise through these relationships. And the same for their families. I mean, having a direct line to a prominent merchant or a pr- prominent administrator was obviously something that was very valuable as people were trying to negotiate their position in coastal society. Um, on the side of Europeans, I mean, we have to simply remember that during this early period in time, again, the 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 differences in power were not nearly as skewed as they would become in a much later period of time. When when Europeans first arrived on the coast, and for at least the first couple hundred years, um, they were very much dependent on Africans. Um, and these relationships allowed them to, number one, have access to the language. I mean, this is a kind of common theme anywhere in the world, and um, there's a kind of pejorative term for for local women who entered into relationships with uh, foreign men that were called sleeping dictionaries. That kind of encapsulates that kind of function. But, you know, through these women, they also had access to um, local health care remedies, which were very important when these men were coming into contact with tropical illnesses that they were unfamiliar with. And obviously the family connections, you know, how how are you going to go about creating a trade network it's with local people. And so through these marriages, they were able to make those kinds of connections. So they were very strategic on for both sets of actors involved, both European and African. And if you're a European and you marry an African wife, you're sort of going to be absorbed into the local society to some degree? Um, yes. I mean, I think this is, uh, you know, something that is another kind of important thing to remember, again, in this earlier time period, was that Europeans very much had to adapt themselves to local ways because they simply um, didn't have the wherewithal and the power and the resources to kind of impose themselves on the situation. And so, yes, to a great extent, they were absorbed and were having to accommodate local ways. So, for instance, you know, in contracting a marriage, a European man had to abide by customary law in in contracting that marriage. So he really had to operate on a kind of local terrain. On WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, you are listening to Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. My guest on the show today is historian Karina Ray, and we're talking about sexual politics in colonial Ghana. In a few minutes, marrying South Asian traditions with New York life— But first, let's hear the rest of my conversation with Karina Ray. So this goes on, this exchange and sort of trading culture goes on from like the late 15th century all the way up into the late 19th century when the British officially take over as the colonial power in the area and they decide they want to change the way that things are in terms of these relationships. Tell me about that. By the early 19th century, Britain had sort of managed to elbow out the majority of its competitors in terms of all of the different Europeans. By the second half of the 19th century, the British 
take the decision to actually begin formal formally colonizing the area. One of the most important aspects of that was that there was no longer this sort of fluidity between Africans and Europeans. Power relations became much more rigid. And there was also um, a move to exclude Africans from government positions. So in an earlier time period where you actually saw Africans, you know, included in the early administration by the late 1800s, that's no longer happening. And particularly with the discovery of quinine, this allowed uh, a much greater presence of Europeans on the coast. And so they no longer had to rely as much on African staff. In addition to that, the, um, the British also decided that these relationships between um, European men, specifically officers, and African women were um, no longer acceptable because they believed that in order for a European man to effectively carry out um, his administrative duties, he had to be seen as both separate and above those that he ruled. So in all of those ways, the administration regarded these relationships as transgressive, that it transgressed the divide between colonized and colonizer. It created opportunities for local women and their families to exert influence on um, a European officer. Um, and we also have to remember that, you know, when we think about the way in which colonialism was justified, right? It was justified as the civilizing mission. The idea that Europeans were morally superior to Africans and that Africans needed to be civilized. Um, and part of the, the kind of moral superiority was the notion of kind of sexual morality. And we have to also remember that we're talking about the Victorian period, right? So being sexually chaste or being sexually restrained was one of the ways in which Europeans regarded themselves and marked themselves as superior and different to Africans, whom you know Europeans marked as being sexually licentious, not being able to control their sexuality, right? That's a, one of the major racist discourses that colonialism used in order to justify itself. Even though, as they were sort of saying, you really can't have these formalized relationships, it sort of was a nudge-nudge-wink-wink thing about actually having sex with these women, right? Yes and no, and it changes over time. If we think about the three major contexts in which interracial sex took place or could take place, they were marriage, concubinage, and prostitution, okay? Marriage was most certainly seen as the, the most threatening form of interracial contact. Concubinage was, was the, the second form that was seen as threatening. And even though it didn't confer the same kind of legitimacy as marriage, it was still a more regularized form of interracial union because, you know, obviously a, a man who ha was keeping one concubine was having a relationship with one woman, there was some regularity in, in their um, relationship and some kind of exchange that was going on. Prostitution was seen as the least threatening because of its casual 
and infrequent nature. And so in that sense, the administration, oddly enough, given this whole kind of discourse around morality, was far more tolerant of interracial prostitution than it was of either interracial concubinage and certainly interracial marriage. This colonial relationship goes on officially from the late 19th century all the way up until the 50s. During that time, obviously, in the UK and throughout much of the world, there's World War I, and then there is a massive labor shortage in England. And that sort of leads to some interesting developments as well in terms of interracial relationships. During World War I, British men were obviously brought into the army, and that created a huge labor shortage in the merchant marines. And uh, what Britain did was that it brought men from the colonies to fill the labor vacuum. And so you had men in increasing numbers um, working in the merchant marines and also working uh, in wartime factories in Britain itself. And you also had a lot of men from the colonies who were actually fighting in the army itself. When the war comes to a close, uh, many of these men are demobilized in Britain itself, and many of the men who had been working in the Merchant Marines also decided to um, stay in Britain itself. What ended up happening is that by the summer of 1919, you had increasing job competition over decreasing, radically decreasing numbers of uh, available jobs. And this is in the midst of a constricting um, wartime economy, which hits the shipping industry particularly hard. So there's these race riots that happen. And even though economic explanations really seem to be the most compelling explanation for, uh, for the race riots, people at the time explain it not as much through economic tension but through the prism of what becomes known in the newspapers at the time as the sex problem. Many of these men from the colonies had either married British women or were having you know, relationships with British women. And so the idea on the part of the white rioters was, you know, not only are they stealing our jobs, but they're taking our women. The race riots swept through um, all of Britain's um, major ports. And you had black men and their wives and their multiracial families attacked during the riots. You had their homes burned down. There were several fatalities. I mean, it's actually quite telling that um, Britain's first officially recognized lynching of a black man is in the context of these riots. News of the riots filtered back to the Gold Coast very, very quickly. I mean, this is circulation of information um, during that time period was quite good. And so when they started learning about these race riots, Gold Coasters, you know, became very angry. So they began to say, wait a second, our men are being beaten in the streets of England for, for marrying or cohabiting with white women when for centuries European men have been having their way with our women along the coast and it's never led to violence. This is this is absolutely outrageous. And they began to really look at and critique the hypocrisy involved in that. But then they also went a step further, which is to sort of examine themselves um, and examine the way in which they had tolerated the relationships between European men and local women, and particularly 
began to articulate a, a strong sense of grievance over the fact that these relationships were no longer conferring legitimacy on the African women who participated in them. So if we think back to this earlier period in time that we um, talked about, those relationships were uh, in accordance with uh, local customary law, right? And the women um, who participated in them were seen as and regarded as the wives of European men. And in this later period of time, as of the early 20th century, they were no longer seen as native wives. They were concubines at best. And Gold Coasters began to um, to really look at these relationships as corrupting female virtue. They begin to chip away at the veneer of European sexual morality. And they begin to say, wait a second, these men are here satisfying their carnal desires in any way that they please. This is not sexual morality. And, and, and in that way, they begin to sort of unpin one of the civilizing missions, sort of major um, linchpins, right? The idea of European morality based on this notion of sexual, sexual morality. And in this way, I really link, you know, what happens in the British ports, the 1919 race riots, um, and the concerns that it then raises over what's happening in um, the Gold Coast colony of, uh, with regards to relationships between European men and African women to the um, rise of anti-colonial sentiments in the Gold Coast. The most recent marriages that you talk about were in 1945, when four British officers married Gold Coast women. By this time, this was really frowned upon by the colonial authority. Ghana got its independence in 1957, but obviously this is a complicated thing, and 1957 isn't that long ago. What traces of this history can we see today in Ghana? One sees uh, the traces of all of this that happened in families that exist in Ghana today. The legacy of these marriages is still present in the families that are the products of them. So, for instance, uh, I've been working on a family history of the Knights, and Brandon Knight was one of the, and his wife Agnes, who was Ghanaian, were, were a couple, one of the couples that I had mentioned previously who had married in 1945. He was a British district commissioner, and she was the niece of uh, an African clerk in the colonial service that worked under Mr. Knight, and they married in 1945, as I indicated. He kept his job throughout the colonial period, even though in the interviews that he's now passed away, but in the interviews that I did with Agnes, who is 80 years old and is still alive and lives in Ghana, uh, she made it very clear that the colonial administration did everything in its in its power to basically sabotage his career and make life very, very difficult for them. But he nonetheless persisted. And what's interesting is that at independence, um, of course, they Africanized the government service. But uh, Agnes, knowing that her husband would be losing his job and would be sent back to Britain and very concerned about what this would mean to the fate of her family, actually petitioned Prime Minister Kwame Nkrumah, who was the person who brought Ghana to independence. And actually she would go and she would stand out, out front of the, the state house when all the ministers would come in every day. Um, and she basically had a one-woman protest. 
and Nkrumah got wind of this and brought her in and said, you know, what's going on? And she's, you know, she pleaded, please, you know, um, don't send my husband home. And Nkrumah actually made a special dispensation for Brandon Knight. Um, she is uh, still there. And they had f- four sons and one daughter. Um, the daughter is, is still living in Ghana. And, and the, the four sons um, are now living outside of, of Ghana and in Europe and the United States, etc. They've all, by the way, married people from different parts of the world. It's an incredibly international sort of family. And so I think, you know, when I just look at that family, for instance, I think you very much see kind of the... Um, the legacy of, of, of a kind of path-breaking decision that this couple made in 1945 to sort of risk everything in order to be together um, and the incredible obstacles that they faced. But it has, you know, produced an amazing family that has continued kind of the trend of marrying beyond race uh, lines. Karina Ray is an assistant professor of history at Fordham. Karina, thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you. It's a pleasure. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead this morning on Cityscape, stories about being in love with New York. That's Cityscape with George Bodarchy this morning at 7.30 on WFUV. But first, we'll leave you with this story of looking for love and doing business in the cultural centrifuge that is New York City. As we know, the city is full of sharp contrasts. Stepping off the subway in one neighborhood is an immersion in traditional culture. Getting off at a different stop is an experience in the ultra-modern. This contrast is as true with love as it is for anything else. WFUV's Liz Brockland has more. As you walk down 74th Street in Jackson Heights, you see saris hanging in the store windows and displays of wedding jewelry everywhere. If you're looking for traditional Indian products, this is the place to come, and these businesses rely on traditional weddings to survive. One of these businesses, Malankar Jewelers, specializes in wedding jewelry sets. Yamil Patel is the store's manager. For a traditional Indian wedding, a jewelry consists of a necklace set, bangles, earring, and with tikka, rings, Everything, the whole nine yards. Patel says the jewelry set is an important part of the tradition. A bride wears a lot of jewelry, and she takes all that jewelry from her father. And when she gets married, she takes those jewelry to her new home. And that jewelry is a kind of insurance for her that when she breaks up the marriage, she can cash in this jewelry and still live the livelihood. Surrounded by stores full of bright clothing and restaurants with sauces and meat steaming in the window, you can feel the presence of traditional culture. But only a short trip on the 7 train away, young South Asians are meeting potential mates in strikingly modern ways. On a frigid Sunday night in December, about two dozen singles squeeze into the People's Lounge on the Lower East Side for a night of Indian speed dating. They stand around before the event begins, twirling straws in their cocktails and mingling. For some, it's new and exciting. For others, it's nerve-wracking even the second time around. You know, you only get one to three minutes with each girl. <laughs> and I, I thought, you know, that, that, that's like an impossible task. You know, how are you going to impress somebody three minutes? Some people can't impress a woman in like a lifetime. <laughs> that's Lohit, a Sri Lankan who says he's just trying to find love. 
Others say they're here to meet people who share their cultural values. And for some, it's a plus for their parents, too. I actually told my dad right before I was about to come here that I was going speed dating. First reaction was, you're going speed dating? Then I said, I'm going to an Indian speed dating. And all of a sudden, he was like, okay, great, good luck, have fun. That's Mandy, a 31-year-old lawyer from Queens. She says she wants to meet someone who understands where she's coming from. Wow. Um, Indian in New York. Someone who has a mix of both cultures is very, very important to, I think, most gro- kids that have grown up in this culture. Um, having the family values, which is very core to being Indian, versus American families, which are very, you know, you're 18 and you're out of the house. And still having the freedom to do what we want to do, which is a mix of the American culture. That mix is a small piece of something larger that's going on in New York's immigrant communities. Madhulika Kandelwal is the director of Asian American Studies at Queens College. She says that for young South Asians in New York, being South Asian means something very different than it did for their parents. The interesting thing about the new generation is that I would say they are very consciously um, Indian or South Asian. But that's their ancestry. That's their ethnic identity. Um, Their main primary basic identity is American. So they're Americans of that ancestry. Back in the Lower East Side, the evening of speed dating is wrapping up after two full hours. Some people are hurrying out. Others stick around talking with newfound friends or potential second dates. They won't find out until tomorrow who their matches are. Lohit is excited and hopeful. He feels like he really connected with a lot of the women here tonight. But he's not taking any chances. I put down every girl. See, that? that's, that's just to stay on the safe side, you know what I mean? Because the girls, you know, they tend to be a little bit more selective, you know what I mean? So you got... So you never want to take a chance. No matter what your background is, it seems some strategies are universal. And all is fair in love and speed dating. For WFUV News, I'm Liz Brockland. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, love to hear from you. You can hear Fordham Conversations as a podcast or in our archives, both at WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening, and have a wonderful weekend.